0: us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to one hour at a time recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process now here's
3: your host Mary Woods welcome to one hour at a time Um, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today and I'm struggling with allergies so bear with me everyone um, I think we have a very interesting show. It's it's a topic that we often don't, um, at least I don't, get information about. And this is, um, our show is going to really revolve around relationships in early recovery. And in recovery, what does it mean to be in a relationship and have a partner when you're in recovery from um, a substance use disorder? And our guest today um have a lot of experience with this, both personally and professionally, and I'd like to introduce our guest to you. Our first guest is Elaine Liedem, and um, she is a licensed clinical social worker in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Elaine holds a master's degree in social work from Marywood University. She specialized, she, her specialized training with Patrick Carnes has rewarded her with Dual national certifications for sex and multiple addiction therapists by the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Um, John Latham is uh, also a licensed clinical social worker in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania, with a master's degree in social work from Marywood University and a master's degree in human resources administration from the University of Scranton. He specialized in also with Patrick Carnes, and was also awarded uh, the Dual National Certifications for Sex and Multiple Addiction Therapists by the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Um, Welcome to our show, Elaine and John.
4: Welcome. I'm glad to be here, Mary. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, You know, this is a fascinating topic that I, you know, it amazes me that, like, we don't know more about this. Um, because what I've often learned over the years is that no relationships for the first year, and if you're in a relationship, you need to work your program. And it's almost like you put your relationship, you park it for a while. And um, I think this is a great uh, approach and idea. Can you share with our listeners um, your philosophy?
5: Sure, sure, Mary. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. I grew up in the in the same recovery model that you referred to, in which we were told to stay on separate sides of the track. In fact, staying out of one's partner's recovery program was almost as important as meetings, meetings, meetings. Unfortunately, what we found and what many couples will find is that the impact, the traumatic impact that untreated addiction will have on a romance will cause great injury, and if that injury is not addressed in a timely fashion uh, through a shared program of recovery or conjoint therapy or both, then that relationship will begin to wither and will not be as strong as the relationships that the recovering addicts are beginning to experience within the fellowship rooms. Uh, we we learned the hard way, and we uh, have committed our careers and our writing at this point to help couples um, to avoid the mistakes that we encountered.
4: I'd like to elaborate a little bit more, also, on that, Mary. I know that when uh, I began in the program of recovery, I started back in the seventies. The first program that I saw help for was because of my parents' alcoholism, and um, I met John in the rooms of recovery, in fact. But the point is is that we were married, and the strong suggestion that I got from my sponsor and that John also got from his sponsor was to, um, you know, work your own program. And basically right. the message was, you know, one that they were parallel programs of recovery, and, you know, that is really the model that I found, followed for quite a while in the beginning, and we found that we have paid unnecessarily unnecessary prices before we learned to use our recovery tools and to apply them also to our relationship, you know, to the coupleship. Um, our commitment eventually to start doing things differently eventually led to my disclosure to John of an affair that I had had many years early in our marriage when. Before that, a priest and I had agreed that I was going to take this secret to my grave. So, um, And then since that time, we have really just practiced these principles, not only in our individual recoveries, and of course to keep very strong relationships with sponsors and support people uh, in our respective programs, but to know that we need to bring this together. And sometimes the opportunity to allow my partner to know me as intimately as my sponsor although really frightening in the beginning when I started this journey with John over 37 years ago has become one of the most thrilling and bonding
3: experiences that I've had I think it's <clears throat> excuse me I think it's really um I guess um amazing to think about the fact that <clears throat> this is the first time, and i've been in this profession for over thirty years that w- that we're even that i'm even hearing somebody talk about two people working their program together I, that's not the message that we get and and i think john you're you're absolutely right people tend to bond more with their um their peers in self-help or mutual help than they do with their families, and they they tend to grow distant from their family. And um, I also want to clarify that you're both saying that there's a role for um, self-help in recovery, but we have to look at it as a mutual experience and not a selfish one.
5: There's a paramount role for self-help, and the idea, the notion that I grew up in the rooms with in the early 70s was that I needed to be the most selfish in this process because I needed to take care of myself we're not proposing that anyone in early recovery or seasons in recovery give up that responsibility or that primary obligation, but that couples with some help look to learn how to integrate those recovery programs uh, in much the same way that they integrate their recovery efforts to experience strength and hope with other members of their particular fellowship. We don't really believe that one's spouse ought to be third or fourth fiddle, we believe that one spouse ought to be an intimate part of uh, recovering addict or co-addict's support system.
3: And in your book, you also um, refer to um, your sponsors as uh, surrogate parents and people in the halls as extended family.
5: I had the uh, the good fortune as I look at it now, uh, although I think I was quite resentful. I, I got sober when I was 18 and and the recovery rooms uh, in the 19, early 1970s were not all that friendly a place for young people. Um, I ended up adopting uh, the support group that I um, developed relationships with as my extended family members and was in many ways parented by the sponsors that um, I developed relationships with. And so Mayan was not so much of a rehabilitation process as it was a habilitation process because um, I knew more about getting into trouble than, than about... Um, improving with the quality of my life or functioning uh, in society. And so I was going to grow up in the fellowship rooms, and what I was told I thought was the gospel, and I should follow it to the ends of the earth. Uh, with regard to romance, what I was told was stay out of my partner's recovery no matter what. And that was a gigantic mistake uh, for us, in, as Elaine has alluded to early in our marriage
4: I know for you, for myself, that I'm a real strong proponent of the 12-step recovery programs, and in fact, belong to a few of them, and have gotten help. Like I said, since the 1970s, uh, mid-70s, when I began, um, and I do absolutely feel the sponsorship uh, that I have been so privileged to um, enjoy and participate in has been almost like a parent relationship. You know, I came married from a, a home where both my parents were alcoholic and left that home at the age of eighteen, uh, deciding that I was not going to return back to that home, but really had none of the tools you know in terms of uh, romance for sure, but any of the many other facets of life, I really felt very lost, and thankfully uh, went into the rooms of recovery with the encouragement of my sister and have been able to adopt the 12 Steps as well as the 12 Traditions as a way to cope with many of the things that my life um, presents. And, of course, one of the main areas of my life is romance. And prior to meeting John, um, I just kept making one mistake after another in romance, going with the belief that my emotional safety, my general well-being, lies in the hands of another man, And from that belief system, really, uh, I developed a great deal, many problems that I had to address. Um, Eventually, I did address through looking at a sex and love addiction.
5: Um, Likewise for me, Mary. I uh, spent about three and a half years in a 12-step fellowship as a young guy, um, hearing every day, Um, The old adage, or it wasn't so old at the time, I guess I've just gotten old, the old adage that under every skirt there's a slip and that I needed to stay out of romantic relationships at least for the first year, but then again until I really didn't need to be in one. Uh, and it was very difficult for me. I was desperate for love. I was desperate for a connection. I had lost my very best friend on the whole planet, Southern Comfort. And I was going to be... um causing a great many problems in the lives of the women in the fellowship rooms that I attended and my own because of my unidentified, untreated love and sex addiction, which at the time would have been called womanizing because there were no 12-step fellowships for sex addicts or love addicts. I wish I would have known then what we have learned in our relationship about building a sober romance. I think I would have had far fewer amends to make and hurt far fewer people.
3: You're bringing up three things that I'd really uh, like to talk a little bit about. Elaine, you talked about romance, and I'd like you to to, to define that. And then, um, John or Elaine, could you talk about um, what is love addiction and what is sex addiction and how are they different? So,
4: Sure. When we refer to a sober romance, we're really asking people to consider um, at least five of the tenants that we have um, outlined that, best describe some of the fundamental uh needs that we believe uh constitute a sober romance um, i'd like to read them to you if i can sure that we have okay um, first one is to shoulder the full responsibility for the quality of your own life and recovery but also to assume 100% of the responsibility for the relationship's tasks you know meaning basically that Everything that comes before a relationship, whether we're talking about responsibilities for child rearing or economic stability, sexual pleasure, housekeeping, um, how we spend our vacation, all of that needs to be something that both partners are 100% responsible for, not just one. Um, we, We have gotten in trouble more than once, Mary, when... We have said that there's really no such thing as babysitting your child when we will hear predominantly from the father of a union that uh, they have to babysit their child uh, rather than they are caring for their child. Um, Another one of the tenets we uh, support and stand by is to be responsible to and not for your partner. You know, being responsible for suggesting that I need to fix my partner rather than being responsible to, is suggestive and promotes an act of love where you really show up for your partner in many ways that we could even talk about later. That each partner has 50% of the voting stock. There really is no um, belief that we carry that one person has 51% of the voting stock and therefore is the major stockholder and can veto, so to speak, somebody else's decision. And we have found this to be so uh, instrumental in making decisions in our relationships, uh, our relationship, because basically it forces John and I to come to some kind of compromise, some kind of agreement. And if we can't come to an agreement on some decision that is uh, major in our relationship, then basically what's going on is we need to go after what is driving that division that is occurring between us. And the decision that we have to make almost becomes inconsequential at that time. We talk about half measures availing us nothing, which is kind of to move away from that mindset that you know each partner has to bring 50% to the relationship and that that's sufficient. Um, time and time again, we have found that if one partner in a relationship is not being spiritually fit, one reason or another, the most they may be able to contribute on a given day is 20%. And when that occurs, we ask for the other partner to bring the 80% and for the couple not to settle for that idea of, you know, I brought my 50%, you have to bring, your 50% will meet halfway. You know, life just doesn't work that way. So we ask them to move out of that mindset. And the last one is about that, you know, when you're looking at the menu, so to speak, when you're looking outside of your marriage that that can cause harm to another relationship, whether or not you engage in a relationship outside of your marriage or not, you know so what we're alluding to is you know fantasy or the use of flirtation or something else outside of the relationship. you know when that's going on, something is happening internally or externally to a person uh, in the marriage where they are feeling. Uh, unfulfilled possibly or there's some level of unhappiness and again if you are looking outside and you're pretending that you're in a relationship that you are not actually in you're going to get in trouble because we understand you truly can only be in one relationship at a time
3: and we'll be right back after this commercial with more with um, Elaine and John
2: listening to voice america health and wellness
1: there are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need tune in to outreach today with host melissa jenkins simon our program promotes the benefits and services of ci incorporated providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies we want to help you Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
2: a fresh look at today's health voice america health and wellness
3: today are Elaine and John Liedem, and um, we're talking about um, romance and recovery and relationships with people who have um, some type of addictive disorders, and uh, Elaine just shared with us five ways to a sober romance. And Elaine and John have devoted, I guess, most of their adult life to um, helping couples who are in recovery, learn to be a couple and learn how to um, mold or meld their recovery into their relationship. And prior to going to commercial, Elaine was sharing with us about um, a sober romance in recovery. And um, then we were going to talk about love addiction and sex addiction. So, uh, Elaine, is there anything else you want to say before we give it to John?
4: Um, no, basically, I think I was able to finish my last thought, and I think it might be a good place for John to pick up in terms of the discussing more about the sex and love addiction. But I know that any time that we're looking outside of our relationship for that feeling of completeness or that feeling of fulfillment, uh, whether it's through an emotional affair, whether it's through an actual affair, whether it's through just fantasy and flirtation, we're going to really rob the relationship that we are in of that chance for intimacy and closeness. John, you want to pick it up there? You bet,
5: thanks. Uh, the last point that, that Elaine offered um, is, is so significant in my own story of recovery and, and our work with couples. I spent about three and a half years in the first um, part of my recovery and what I have come to, to lovingly, uh, as I look back on it, call a reign of terror. And that reign of terror was fueled in large measure uh, by my attraction um, to romance, uh, my attraction to sex, I did not know that I was suffering with a love and sex addiction. There was no such diagnosis at the time. There were no 12-step support groups, uh, as there are fortunately today for individuals suffering with that. So there I am with what amounts to a dull diagnosis, uh, recovering alcoholic and not-so-recovering love and sex addict, and was going to take probably about three and a half and maybe another year and a half after I finally got honest about my difficulty with romancing uh women before I began to look at what I believed was an addictive process, that much like with an alcoholic, Mary, when a love or sex addict finds uh, the pursuit or love or the acquisition of sex as a solution to life's problems, as a way of coping with how they feel, and that solution begins to generate problems, as with any addictive disorder. When the solution to the problem causes problems, we have an addictive process. I was going to be hard-pressed to understand what to do about that because there was no thinking that had been put into um, uh Applying the principles of recovery to love and sex addiction, I thought that I could, as Elaine referred, look at the menu as long as I didn't order a colloquial saying from the 70s that meant I could admire, I could enjoy other people's bodies, I could fantasize about other relationships, believing there was going to be no consequence uh, for me. The list of consequences that a love and sex addict will experience during the course of an untreated progressive illness, uh, as we know it today, will be very similar to those um, identified in the treat treatments of alcoholism and other substance addictions. Uh, we find uh, many of our couples are struggling with both and that our approach um, that we call a shared program of recovery begins to address the injuries that the relationship has experienced, as well as um, addressing the individual recovery dynamics that the addict or the co-addict may be struggling with. Mary?
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm lost in thought because I'm thinking of so many people that I've worked with over the years who, um, you know, have just so so struggled with their own family and relationships, and in um, and, and the powerlessness I felt as a, as a therapist to really help them with that because of what I had learned for years about um, everybody using their own program. And, um, you know, I think that when we talk about um, recovery and we talk about relationships, One of the things that we all know is that relationships take a lot of work. And um, you have just uh, published, I think, One in the Spirit, which is a meditation course for recovering couples, um, which really addresses that whole idea about um, making a conscious effort every day to work on this relationship. And it's really a choice that people make. And um, in this, you talk, uh, you, you get a different topic for every week. And um, could you just share with our listeners why you wrote this, um, the meditation course for Recovering Couples?
4: I can tell you for myself, Mary, it truly was and began as an act of love for me. Um, I really felt very compelled to share this, that it was an opportunity to give back mm-hmm. What was really freely given to me, uh, through many years of being in the 12-step recovery. You know, our beginning, the beginning of this manuscript, One in the Spirit, began well before that the pen hit the paper and we began actually writing the book. Um, it truly is a collection of the events and the experiences that have happened in our own lives in our 37 years of marriage. And it does include the triumphs and the mistakes that we made, and some of our mistakes were very painful. Um, But what we found was that there was good reason to share and to learn from the injuries that we endured, whether from each other or those that we caused other people, and that we should take the focus that we learned from many of the recovery tools that we were given in our programs and take that and to use that in terms of healing our own relationship. And then the actual inspiration, so to speak, to write this book came from working with just hundreds of couples in our you know, therapy practice who showed us time and time again their courage and their um, commitment, their dedication to going after what they were seeking, which was the emotional intimacy and closeness that John and I would speak of And we would see them do this over and over again, and we wanted to be able to put it actually in print through a model that we hoped was going to be attractive to many, which is a daily meditation guide that couples could look at each day, follow for five days one theme that comes from, that pulls from, I'm sorry, the spiritual principles very familiar to people in recovery, and then for five days to read about these themes, Monday through Friday. And then on day six, give the couples an opportunity to what we call do the weekend workshop, which is simply asking a couple of questions that, if they so choose, they could journal about and share with their partner to kind of give a complete picture of what they went through that week as they addressed that theme that we put forth. You know, like one of them, for instance, being being of service to your partner. That's just one example out of the fifty-two themes that we put through.
3: Yeah, and that's that's an interesting concept. When I first um, was looking over the table of contents, I'm thinking, "Being of service to your partner," and I immediately went to the negative. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's really not what you're you're proposing. Um, it's really about um, loving your your partner and um being there for them in much the same way you would be there for um you know somebody in in your fellowship or you know somebody at work
4: yeah that's really an excellent point that you make that it is much like being um of service to somebody that you would in a relationship outside of your marriage because that's truly what we mean by that what we mean again that it really is um a loving act to be responsible to your partner. And one of the ways that we ask couples to do that time and time again is to get permission from their partner, but with the hope and the intention that you are going to really show up and share your concerns directly with your partner. You know, who really knows us best than the people that live with us and even better still, the person that we're married to, or at least we hope that to be true. You know, many times I've looked really great at a 12-step meeting, and I've looked really sober, but get me in my home, and I may look very different. John has an opportunity to see me in many mood states, and he really sees on a day-to-day basis how I'm coping, or for that matter, how maybe I'm not coping. And so to be responsible and for him to show up, for instance, and to be of service is to share his concerns, to give me feedback as he sees me getting through the day, if he's concerned about me. And then to do that through sharing of his experience, strength, and hope, bringing his own identification into the process, which, you know, again, we know are, the readers are very familiar with that format.
5: And, and for me, Mary, the... uh The the work began, as Elaine had said, long before we ever got to the manuscript. Uh, Most of the couples that we've worked with over the past 40 years have been what we call engaged to be divorced and would frequently ask us to come home with them. Can't you just come home with us, help us with this? And this is an opportunity for us to come into people's living rooms and address some of the commonly uh, experienced challenges in early recovery or seasoned recovery for that matter on a daily basis.
3: Um, And we'll be right back after this commercial with um, Elaine and John.
0: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders.
1: The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260 day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co creation with Great Spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network.
2: Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness
3: Welcome back, everyone. Our show today is Five Ways to a Sober Romance, and our guests are Elaine and John Leigham, and we have a caller, Rick. What is your question?
5: Hi, uh, my name is Rick. I have a question. What do you say to couples who claim that the problem in their relationship is either one or even both of them is falling out of love? What do you tell them?
4: Thank you, Rick, for calling. I'd like to take a shot at that. (laughs) Um, One of the first things that come to mind when I hear that is that I really need to first find out uh, how it is that that couple believes that they really have fallen out of love or, in fact, were they ever in love. Um, I first go after what did it look like at the beginning of this relationship? What did in love feel like? Um, And, in fact, if they didn't feel in love, what was going on at the time? But we have uh, been able to develop a program Shared program of recovery, Rick, that really works at trying to help people to recapture the feeling of being in love early in the relationship. But my first work with them as a therapist is to get them back to the early part of the relationship and start defining what it is that they saw about their partner that really uh, promoted that feeling of being in love and what it is that they believe has happened that uh, pushed them to the point of falling out of love. Um, most of the time, we if the partners are willing to go forward to get back maybe to that earlier uh, romantic feeling that they had, our work focuses on trying to teach them how to be open and vulnerable to one another in their sharing and how, again, to be responsible to their partner. And then this kind of relationship really just promotes closeness and love with one another. And then what we find over and over is that as that closeness develops, their partners start looking more emotionally and physically attractive to one another, which then generates a greater depth of intimacy between the two of them.
5: And Rick, I don't know uh, what specific couple you're talking about, but if that couple were to be the parents of uh, children, as an example, um, of adult age, I would encourage them to sit down and talk with their children uh, without their partner present about the marriage that occurred all those many years ago or the relationship that was consummated all those many months or years ago and how you felt about your partner at that time to talk with your kids about who their father was, who their mother was, will return you to a time when the romance was fresh and the feeling was uh, like a, a, a brand new day. Um, oftentimes what we've seen is that people that are talking about falling out of love have really outlived the usefulness of that initial excitement and jazz that occurs in the pursuit of the relationship. And now they have to go to work. Now they have to go to work on a daily basis, uh, which is what one in the spirit does. Uh gives them an opportunity to work on a daily basis at getting back to the closeness that was once so thrilling to the two of them. Thank you for calling.
3: Yes, thank you, Rick. Well,
0: thank you. Thanks. you. Give me a lot to think about.
3: Thank you for calling. <clears throat> you know, that brings to mind the how little we really know or were taught about relationships growing up. You know, we have Cinderella and we have all the fantasies, but the idea that that romantic um, adrenaline surge that you get when you first see somebody or the excitement you have is going to stay forever is unrealistic, but nobody prepares us for the fact that, like you're saying, John, is that you have to go to work at this
5: on a daily basis, um, or I just be in a situation in which the level of communication is pretty intense. I, I spent about 30 years running residential treatment facilities for addiction, Mary, and as you probably are w- well aware, uh, one of the, the ongoing struggles of any clinical director is to watch out for the shipboard romances that develop in treatment. And those shipboard romances between prospective romantic partners who are inpatients in that facility will occur largely because of the level of sharing, not necessarily because of who that person looks like or reminds them of, but the level of sharing is pretty intense. And that intensity is very romantic.
3: Well, I think a lot of people get caught up in chasing that romance. You know, it's like I'm with this person and I have this feeling and the feeling uh, subsides and then I go chase it with someone else.
4: Yeah, I can say for myself, Mary, that that really was uh, part of and at the root of my own uh, sex and love addiction, not to suggest that everybody that has that feeling that you're describing is somebody that has that addictive process like I do, but I remember being very young as a child just using fantasy. Um, you know, about anything, I'm not talking about sexual fantasy, but just fantasy as a major way to cope with the unrest that I felt inside because of what was going on downstairs in the kitchen between my parents who were battling it out, you know, after a night of drinking. And it wasn't long after that that fantasy became something that was more of a romantic or of a sexual nature, um, and I would just be able to experience this feeling of numbness but also, as I grew up, what you're describing, which is more of an arousal type of uh, sensation, and that, for me, unfortunately, became something that I did chase. You know, it's something that certainly felt good, but it also altered the way that I was feeling. It took me away from those uncomfortable feelings that I was not feeling able to cope with. And, you know, like I said, I could trace that, Uh, strategy, that coping strategy, way back to being a very young little girl, and I really had to address that almost as you would address a character defect in the sense that I needed to change this if I was going to be fully present and sober in all of my affairs.
3: You know, um, one of the uh, statistics that you gave me um, prior to the show was from Jennifer Baker at of the Forest Institute of Professional Psychology in Springfield, Missouri. And according to her data, 50% of first marriages, 67% of second marriages, and 74% of third marriages end in divorce. Um, what is your professional experience with couples suggest as a reason for this?
4: you want to go after that one, John? John often gets in trouble for answering
5: this question. you want to uh, have a shot at it? Sure. Uh, I've gotten in trouble more than once responding to that question, which is probably uh, why we focused on it so much. Um, I stood at the altar on my wedding day uh, to the woman I love and have been married to for 37 years, and I said everything that was required of me. I followed all the dictates and promised to love, honor, obey, till death do us part. And then we got an opportunity to exchange our own vows, and, and uh, much to the surprise of Father Cavin, uh and thankfully my mic wasn't working, so to none of the rest of the audience in the church, I said to Elaine, I can't promise that I'll stay married to you because I have never stuck to anything, that I am terrified that I will run from this relationship because being someplace else was always the solution for me. Uh, we had been through, uh, the pre-Cana experience, um, and learned about how to communicate, but we didn't really learn, uh, much about how to be sober together. And I found myself, um, about to get in a world of trouble as I sat on a panel, and it's gonna sound like a barroom joke, but it really is not. Uh, I sat on a panel with a priest and a rabbi, and the question, uh, for the panel for an hour was, uh, to address the threats to the Institute of Marriage in the United States. And I decided to, uh, try to be quiet and stay out of trouble and that didn't work because someone finally cornered me from the audience and asked me what I thought about it. And my colleagues had, pre- who had preceded me for about 25 minutes of dialogue had laid out a, a really simple platform and that was that it was too easy in the, in the United States to get divorced. And that's what the problem was. And my answer to the question from the audience uh, was was quite controversial and and uh, pretty simple as well. And that was that it's too easy. To get married in the United States, not too easy to get divorced, and that most of the marriages that I had gotten a chance to see at that point, who had been through a, a religious review process or a pastoral review process, really did not address any of the dynamics that were going or the baggage that each of the member of the relationship was bringing into the to the altar or to the congregation or to the synagogue that day that the folks who were saying until death do them part and blessing that union in the name of God were doing so without even knowing their relationship. So our position is that the divorce rates indicate that it's too easy to get married in the United States. And secondly, that we don't seem to learn anything from our mistakes because every time a group of people who have gotten divorced is studied and followed each divorce, and remarriage increases the rate of divorce. There are studies done at the University of Texas and a, a couple of others that we didn't mention, uh, but that's what we think is happening with that those high divorce rates.
3: <clears throat> and I'm bound you to get some that? awful calls from there.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, you, you mentioned communication, and in your book one of the subtitles is uh, Please Hear What I Am Not Saying. <clears throat> and... I don't know, 30 years ago, we used to have a, um, wasn't really, a, I guess it was a poem that someone had written, and that was the title of it. Please hear what I'm not saying. Could you explain what you mean by that?
5: Do I respond Lee? Go ahead, John. Um, the, that particular theme is asking couples to look behind. Uh, what they are experiencing on the surface in terms of the behavior and to look for an understanding of what the storyline is. All behavior has function, and oftentimes the behavior that couples will experience in each other during heated debate will be coming from another time in their life. The guy who says to his wife, you're just like my mother, would be better served if he were to say, I behave just like my mother's son when I'm around you, which is a way for him to begin to look at the coping strategies that he developed as a child that are now being brought to the forefront in that dialogue. The recovery rooms call them defects of character, um, and, and they are. They are coping strategies for dealing with stress that really have long outlived their usefulness, and yet they will come up. In a romantic relationship over and over again. So, when we're encouraging couples to listen for the story behind the behavior that they're observing, they're experiencing, they're reacting to, Uh, just as if they were sitting at a 12-step meeting and they were wondering what was motivating that person's reaction to the topic that day. Um, That doesn't tend to be the first course of action for romantic couples. The first course of action typically is to start reacting instead of looking for what the person may not be talking about.
3: And we'll be right back after this commercial for our last segment with Elaine and John.
2: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
2: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
3: Welcome back to one hour at a time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and um we are talking with Elaine and John Leedham, who have written um a a couple of books. Actually, the one we're talking about is one in one in the Spirit and it's a an, uh, meditation course for recovering couples um and they also have uh five Ways to a Sober Romance, which are guidelines for for folks um I guess it it could be any folks, just not people in recovery. So um, during our our final segment, um, we we were kind of talking during the break, and John, you were talking about um, the effect that trauma has on relationships. And certainly, most people in recovery bring some type of traumatic event into the relationship, and most people probably have some type of tra- trauma prior to getting into the relationship. So, um, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
5: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity, Mary. Um, in the earlier segment, we had talked about what motivated us uh, to write this book, um, and One in the Spirit, a meditation course for recovering couples. And what I really wish is that we had written or read the book 37 years before. And if I could step back in the time capsule, I'd like to take you back to um, our discovery of, of intimacy in our relationship. And, and it was magical the way it is for many couples. Um, I had spent uh, about eighteen months avoiding all romantic contacts, so I could find out what was wrong with me every time I entered a romantic relationship and felt that I had gotten to the point why I was pretty healthy uh, medigal that I was uh, in love with, and we shared a lot of experience, strength and hope with in around in and around the recovery rooms and and, uh, when intimacy, uh, began to develop in our relationship, sexual intimacy that is, um, it was magical as one might expect, but what, it, what it was going to trigger for, uh, our relationship and be quite the omen of things to come, uh, happened following an intimate encounter in which I woke up about two o'clock in the morning and, uh, and my partner was, was biting a hole in my arm and, and that was because she was encountering, uh, the boogeyman in her past who had, Uh, sexually abused her. It wasn't me. It was that we had gotten close enough in our relationship so that some of the uncomfortable, painful, traumatic memories in her life were going to surface. We found in our work with the Red Cross and in our own therapy work dealing with trauma victims that um, traumatic memories uh, tend to come to the surface uh, uh, under the stress of equal or greater traumas or when people are involved in very intimate relationships that create the kind of vulnerability uh, that give rise to the memories of times when they were vulnerable. And that's what happened that night in in our bedroom. Uh, it was quite the omen of what was coming. I was alarmed. I was terrified. I insisted that my partner go to work on... The, um, the traumatic experiences that would have led to the reaction that I got that night when I was being uh, bitten, um, we made a decision to reach out for help and guidance about that. I, for one, Elaine will talk about what she was told, I, for one, was told uh, that um, my uh fiance certainly sound a bit crazy and maybe it would be prudent to dump her but in no way shape or form was I begin was I to work on her program or to challenge what she was addressing or not addressing I made the decision to go underground to not address the traumatic injuries in her life or the ways that they were manifesting themselves in our relationship I was playing by the rules and what it did was set, help set my partner up uh, to betray the marriage and to act out in sexual ways that I wasn't going to find out about for another 27 years. Elaine, um, do you want to talk a, a bit about uh, how you were guided?
4: Sure, I'd be glad to, John. Truthfully, I wasn't guided, and that's only because I really was not willing to share with anybody that I had... Um, bit John's arm, Um, the shame that I carried around my trauma history, I really just believed was mine. It was buried in the past, meaning I had left my uh, home. I had moved out of my house where I grew up, and it was going to stay back there, and I was not going to bring it forward into my adult life, and I really didn't want to talk to anybody about it. And the truth was, I just stayed terrified uh, about going back into the material Uh, addressing the different ways that I had been abused and the different perpetrators in my life. I wanted to just close the door behind me, and that was really just the past. And, you know, I see that all the time where people will come to me in session and say practically the same exact thing that I said many years ago to John. He would come after me, Mary, and oftentimes in a very loving way, and he would try to say, come on, Elaine, what's going on? talk to me, please, something's going on. And I would really hit him right between the eyes with telling him to back off. You know, something like, the past is just the past, leave it alone. And I knew, basically, that his support group and his sponsors were giving him a similar line. And sure enough, as he just said, he would pull away. Um, I really felt that I couldn't cope, that I would not be able to cope with the pain if I awakened that monster, so to speak, again. And I spent a lot of years running and keeping that shame and secret to myself, like I had shared at the very beginning of our program. And it hurt, you know, John certainly tremendously. Uh, it hurt our children, and it hurt myself. And as John said, it really was so much of being willing to then be open, to be honest, to be vulnerable, that drove so much change in our marriage that really drives the um the uh interest and our uh need to some, so to speak pass this on to others um to really ask people to not do what i did which was to take different parts of my life experience and say this you know has no business in my marriage i've come to understand everything has a place in my marriage, and John really needs to know all of me and I of him, and that is one of the aspects that we work off of when we talk about a shared program of recovery.
5: And so I wish, really do, that I had read the book that we wrote (laughs) 37 years ago. Um because I would have done it differently. I would have challenged the authorities of the day. And it's still the predominant message is to work separate programs of recovery. Um, we we have we have a role in our relationship that's evolved um probably out of that incident uh thirty seven years ago. Not out of the affair that occurred, but out of that incident thirty seven years ago. And that was that neither one of us has the right to tell the other person that they are doing too much in the name of recovery, that neither one of us has the right to tell the other that they are doing too much, and that both of us have the responsibility for letting our partner know when they're doing too little. So if Elaine says after 42 years of sobriety that I have, John, you look like you need to go to a meeting, I just go. I don't question it. And And likewise. And one of the spirit... Um, We'll give couples an opportunity on a daily basis to keep the discussion alive, to keep the vulnerability um, developing in a way that is safe and promotes individual and romantic health. Um, I just wish we had uh, written it many years ago.
3: Um, Where can folks, if they want to take a workshop or they want to learn more about um, your work, how can they go about contacting you? Thanks, Mary. They can uh, reach us at our office in Times River,
5: which is 732-797-1444. We also have an office in North Jersey, in the East Brunswick area of North Jersey, at which we will be holding couples intensives and free workshops to begin with, and then couples intensives that will um, range from a weekend to an entire week in which couples get to examine their relationship under a microscope with other couples who are similarly predisposed using um, our course book that will be out in print later next year called The Shared Program of Recovery. Uh, we will also at that location and at the Times location offer workshops um, featuring a course that we've recently published uh, titled Outser Prevention, which helps individuals develop an individualized
4: relapse prevention plan. Um, do you have a website? Oh, yes, we do have a website. It's leademcounseling.com. Uh, so, L-E-A-D-E-M, counseling.com and on our website we have it uh well developed where people can find out a great deal about what we offer um about our therapists uh um, where our locations are et cetera. our son is very uh very involved in developing our website so that he keeps it very up to date it's also
5: where you can purchase uh, One in the Spirit and uh, the other um, recovery materials that we have published, uh, both at our website as well as on a- at
3: Amazon.com. I want to thank you both for being our guest today. Um, my phone died in the middle of your um, this last segment, so I had to run around and try to find a phone that worked. But um, thank you so much for... Um, this has been an amazing hour for me. I've learned a lot and uh, I hope that's true for our listeners that the whole idea of a shared recovery is so important that couples don't have to grow apart in their recovery and that um, we need to pay more attention to this as clinicians and and find a way for couples to recover together. And I just want to thank you for this. Um, That was great.
4: Thank you so much, Mary, for this opportunity. I really have enjoyed it.
5: Yes, thanks for the opportunity, and we hope uh, folks will take a risk to, to challenge the the parallel program of recovery model and consider a, a shared program of recovery.
3: I do, too, because it's just like common sense, you know? <laughs>
5: well, it's not a really new idea. Um, yeah. Joe, Joe yeah. Martin said it in the early 70s that he hoped one day there would be Recovery Families Anonymous. Um,
3: have a great week, everyone. Um,
1: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.